0: Hey, y'all. Welcome back. So, Lectures on Lacan. We're working through Seminar 14 on the Logic of Fantasy. This is our second session. And per usual, we want to start with a bit of review, just to give everybody a sense of where we went and perhaps kind of allude to where we're going to be headed today. So, first and foremost, that review. Last time, in our first session on this wild, weird seminar... uh, into which we're about 135 pages or so, we started by marking three structural lacks at the center of Lacan's middle thought. And um, you know, some folks have been cracking up about my use of Lacan's early, middle, and later thought, like it's kind of like it's kind of like not a real thing, but it is a real thing. In fact, what I would suggest is that of all the thinkers that I've studied, taught, and so forth, um, Lacan is one of the most organic conceptual thinkers. His stuff is always on the move. His concepts are always evolving. Just look at Objaya. look at that little a and the meaning it has had. Look at fantasy and the meaning it has had from its imaginary to symbolic to potentially real components. A lot of Lacan's terms, jouissance is another one. There are many paradigms of jouissance in Lacan. Um... So it's, it's not impossible to mark out this guy's middle thought. And by middle thought here, I usually pin it to his early to mid-1960s thinking. And I don't know what's up with the 60s, but whatever's happening in the 60s in jazz and analysis alike is phenomenally good. Um, I really like what Lacan is doing basically from seminar 11 forward and thereabouts, you know, like early 60s stuff. The three structural lacks that we marked in his middle thought were one, sexuation, with regard to the living organism. And again, we talked a lot about this in our last series on The Drive, which you can access, and our last series on Seminar 11, which you can also access. The second great structural lack that Lacan's working through in his middle thought is alienation, particularly with regard to the split subject. But as you can see in 14, he's focused less on the split subject vis-a-vis alienation and more on the barred other as also subject to the defiling effects of the signifier, as we'll talk about. The third structural lack that we worked through last time was separation. Here in Lacan's middle thought is going to be referring more to what we do with the barred other. So sexuation with regard to the living organism, alienation with regard to the split subject, and separation with regard to the barred other. And as we saw last time, the split subject and the barred other in their lacks become superimposed at some level in this experience of separation, Lacan tells us toward the end of Seminar 11. All of this brought us to the start of the logic of fantasy, where the opening theme is this, the structural logic of the barred other. Now, I'm not saying the seminar should have been called the logic of the other the logic of the barred other or the structural logic. Fantasy is still squarely on the horizon here. And I think in the materials for today, we'll be able to see again, kind of how he's working his way towards the topic. But at the start of 14, the big theme is the structural logic of the barred other. Emphasis on structure and logic here. So we also had some bumper stickers. That we've all heard before but that point to this issue of the structural lack in the big other why is there no other of the other for the same reason that there's no meta language and here it is simply because containers cannot be among their contents at a simple level Foundational level, a basic level. This is what Lacan is working with here. It's a structural logic of container and thing contained. And if you're a reader of the 20th century literary critic and second greatest reader of Freud, in my view, Kenneth Burke, you know exactly what's up with container and thing contained. But Lacan is here discovering it through set theory and symbolic logic. Containers cannot be among their contents. A bag of dicks is not included in the dicks that are the contents of this bag. This is especially true when containers attempt to contain, encompass, and account for everything as we suppose the big other, the state, the symbolic to do, or at least to attempt to do. Emphasis here on the word suppose. of the fundamental fantasy that we suffer from on a regular basis is this supposition that indeed the big other is full complete and can actually achieve this objective of encompassing and accounting for everything every word in the language is included in the language we often believe so call it what you will the symbolic the state The law, Big Brother, the Big Other, the Queen of England, RIP, all of these entities purport to encompass and contain and everything of sorts. And again, this is part of our fundamental fantasy. We assume, and I would argue delusionally so, not just fantastically, but often delusionally so, that the Big Other. Big brother, the Queen of England, Colonel Sanders, aliens, et cetera. You start getting into psychotic categories of the huge imaginary other. I don't want to go that far with this, but I do want to suggest that part of the fundamental fantasy is this delusion that the big other is whole, complete, full, not suffering from lack like us, but instead um, in touch with plenitude with fullness. Um, We assume that the big other is able to do that. And that's one of the great aspects of the fundamental fantasy, as we discussed in our last series, but also as we're starting to realize here, as Lacan gets into this other fact, which is that beyond the fundamental fantasy is the truth of the big other, which is that it is divided, finite, and incomplete, just like us. That's partly where we're headed today. Let's get at this again, this logic that Lacan is developing around the barred other. Every totalizing effort, every operative effort toward unity, completion, oneness, every effort towards making a group of entities, a pile of entities count as one, as a pile, as a group, cannot help but yield an additional one. And this is the important first move Lacan's making here, a one too many. An apparently extra, but in fact, extimate, un, the un here is very important in French, German, and English alike. The one that is a non of some kind. And this additional one that is a non of some kind must be added to, and thus uncountable within the totalizing supposedly closed count that it eludes, designates, and believe it or not, conditions. And that's the really important part here. This additional one, this one too many, is something in addition to the supposedly totalizing count that the symbolic, the big other and the like purports to maintain. But here's the thing. This additional one eludes that count. It is uncountable within the register of the symbolic, within the register of the other. This additional one also designates that count. And at the same time, this is the very important part that Lacan has yet to spell out for us. This additional one, this one too many, is the condition of possibility for the big other's totalizing effort. And that's very important here. It doesn't just elude and designate this totalizing effort it actually conditions it without that extimate relation to an additional one that can't be counted the logic of the symbolic in badu's terms the state the big other starts to fall apart and so does our fundamental fantasy about it at issue here is effectively a plus one that relative to the other's totalizing count can only be understood as a negative one. And that's important here as well. It's a plus one that when viewed from the vantage point of the symbolic of society, looks like a negative one. It's an addition that looks like a subtraction. The algebraic symbol for this negative one, this un, U-N, in French, English, and German alike, is minus phi. It's the symbol of castration that we oftentimes see in Lacan's thought. Minus phi in parens. This symbol of castration is one way that we've captured this negative one in Lacan's thought, which again is precisely the fundamental fantasy, the fantasy that the other isn't desirous but demanding. And this fantasy defends against the fact that here it is. The other is castrated, like us, suffers the effects of a negative one, of a subtraction that marks some sort of an addition to whatever it is it thinks about itself. This is the key point Lacan is driving at. The other is castrated, just like us, lacking, just like us, incomplete, just like us. And throughout these materials, the other in question is a capital O other. We're not talking about little imaginary others here. We're talking about the capital O other. Whatever Lacan is doing here with the capital O other, his point he's making is that it's barred just like us, always, already, necessarily nothing except barred. And the structural logic of the barred other is what he's trying to explain to us why, structurally speaking, the big other is always barred and lacking. This fact of fallenness and finitude at the level of the other, and its relation to the subject because we're bound up together with these two lacks is where we're headed today. It's what we're gonna try and scare out. This is why I said in direct correspondence with seminar 14, that the cause of this additional one, this one too many for the other to handle, this one too many beyond the other's capacity to count, is fundamentally at root the unary trait. Again, with an emphasis on the un, the U-N, in unary trait. It's a common concept that pops up in Lacan. It's the primordial signifier. The unary trait, remember that U-N on the front, is a negative one symbolized often by the non, the no of the father. This first dimension of what Lacan refers to as the name of the father, logic of prohibition of no is what we're after here with the unary trait. The first signifier, the primordial signifier, the first unary stroke in the subject's life is that of prohibition, which is why the first signifier, I say, whether it was indeed literally that for you, it was effectively, for all of us, no. Whatever your first word was that you heard, that you understood, that you uttered, whatever, it was effectively a no or a response to it. We know what the effect of this primordial signifier, this unary trait is on the living subject. It is an incision, here marked by the minus V, that opens up a space in Lacanian terms, symbolized by Obje A, where I am not. The effect of this unary trait is to incise and open up the incision that is minus phi, that is castration, opens up a space symbolized by obj A, where I am not. And I'm using that phrase, I am not, directly from what Lacan is doing here at the start of seminar 14, roughly the first third of it so far. This phrase, I am not, which is going to help him try to explain what he's doing with alienation in 14 that he hadn't already done with it in 11. This I am not, where I exist as something, which relative to the other's supposed claim to account for everything, can only be experienced as nothing. I'm a something that from the vantage point of the other's attempt to account for everything, looks a hell of a lot like nothing. Something, everything, nothing. These are the pistons of this logic that Lacan is working through here. We can only experience ourselves as this nothing. Because experience, of course, is mediated through the symbolic and from the symbolic's vantage point, this something that we are when we are not looks a hell of a lot like nothing. In other words, as a not thing, as a no thing, an effect of prohibition, as a something which is nothing, but that also signifies the other's lack this is the important additional turn a something which is nothing that also marks a lack in the big other. The fact that the big other, like the Lacanian subject, is necessarily logically and structurally barred. Because in order for its totalizing count of everything to hold, nothing has to be left out nothing can be excluded from that totalizing count nothing has to be left behind and because nothing is left behind the totalizing count is incomplete it just so happens that this nothing that is left behind whatever else it involves marks the place where i am not So let's start here with this I am not and what we know about the Lacanian subject, because that's going to help us understand the Lacanian other that he's now telling us is equally barred. Cogito ergo sum. I think therefore I am. It's a saying I'm sure you've heard before. Um, And the crucial point in bringing it up here just as lacan repeatedly does throughout the first third of seminar 14 is just that it's a saying something said something articulated embodied in speech and writing alike using language namely mediated through the symbolic cogito ergo sum is a saying and yet it's precisely this linguistic embodiment this mediation through the symbolic, that this famous Cartesian bumper sticker also obscures. Cartesian here means that it comes from the thought of Rene Descartes. I think therefore I am famous modern philosopher. How does this happen? How does this saying cogito ergo sum, obscure, suppress, subordinate, the language and the symbolic code on which it relies. Simply by conflating thinking with being, effectively mistaking the life of the mind for living organismic life as though thinking were the same as being. I think therefore I am thought, being, thinking and being. This conflation for Lacan is highly problematic And it's one of the ways that you see his genius at work. Geniuses come in all kinds, but there's a predominant twofold to their structure. Genius is usually somebody that's gonna show up and show you how two things that everybody else at the present thinks are disparate, cell phones and taxi cabs, actually can work very well together. They see similarity and correspondence where others see difference and disparity hence Lyft, hence Uber, hence all the ride-hailing apps you can think of. A smartphone mixed with a taxi cab, turns out those two go really well together. The other type, though, that's predominant is folks who see difference where others only see similarity. Hannah Arendt is a great example of this, Heidegger's foremost student. She is exceptionally good at seeing differences where other people see equivalences. In Arendt's thought, thinking is not willing, is not judging. The life of the mind is structured atop these three very distinct faculties that everybody thinks is the same. Lacan often moves in very much the same way. Need is not demand, is not desire, is not drive. They're connected through a logic that we've developed in this series, but they are fundamentally distinct registers of human experience. But for most folks, a need is the same as a demand, it's the same as a desire. Think about the way that sexuality, for instance, is mediated through rhetorics of need, when in fact it's occurring at the level of desire which in fact, if you push sexuality hard enough, um, isn't about desire at all. Here's why it's important, this phrase, cogito ergo sum for Lacan, and why what he wants to show is that it conflates thinking and being. And what Lacan wants to do is pull those two apart and say, thinking is not being. And he wants to talk about the differential relation between these two elements that according to Descartes, are effectively the same. The fact that I'm thinking is proof that I exist. There's this equivalence between thinking and being that Lacan thinks is complete bullshit. And he's correct. But nevertheless, that bullshit was essential for the intellectual history and development of psychoanalysis. This is why Lacan says, no Descartes, no Freud if there was no delusion of a transparent, transcendental consciousness, which is what Descartes was getting after here, there would be no discovery of the unconscious in all of its meontological glory. And when I say meontological, remember what I mean here from the Greek meon, meaning non-being. Psychoanalysis doesn't have an ontology because it's not about being. It has a may ontology. you've often heard me say, because it traces better than any tradition the fundamental root non-being at the core of humankind. That's why its ontology is a may ontology. And this is out of Lacan. I'm not just making this up. You can find this in his work where he uses and toys with the Greek mayon to try and capture this sense in which psychoanalysis deals with a non-being. And in this first third of the seminar, when he starts getting into repetition, when he starts getting into, I mean, the logic from repression to repetition to retroaction in the first third of the seminar, 14, um, is very much indebted to what he's doing with non-being and the ontological status of psychoanalytic theory and technique. But the point here is that cogito ergo sum matters because the confusion that it embraces of thinking and being was precisely the confusion that psychoanalysis could dispel via Freud, according to Lacan, of course, by separating thinking from being, thought from existence. Um, And principally, this is also the reason why Lacan focuses his discussion of alienation, which is the substance so far of seminar 14, around this naughty phrase. And I want you to hear naughty in every sense of the word, a knot of wood, a knot that is not, and then, of course, the the most likely one, which is naughty as in very bad. Here's that naughty phrase that you hear over and over again at the start of seminar 14, and it's the one we're going to just unpack, get it out of the way, and move on from. Either I do not think or I am not. Lacan keeps returning to this phrase in 14, either I do not think, or I am not. So you see why alienation is the term he's using here, because this is an either or, it's a veil again. Either I do not think, or I am not. Something about this for him is crucial. Let's see if we can make sense of it. Now, as always, with making sense, it seems with things in Lacan, just like last time in our first session on 14, we spent a lot of time reading 11 to get us ramped up to 14. In order to understand this particular part of 14, where he's talking about this either or, either I do not think or I am not. In order to understand this, it's important to actually take another step back, a little further back this time. From 67 to 57, 10 years prior, when Lacan is writing, the agency, or as the wondrous, ever-wondrous Bruce Fink puts it, the instance of the letter in the unconscious. It's an essay in a Cree, starts about in the 400s. You can check it out. But that's where Lacan's thinking on this particular alienation and the Cartesian cogito ergo sum, really finds its most profound pronouncements 10 years prior to what he's doing here in 14. So let's take a look. And we'll do this as efficiently as possible, with the idea being that you can always go back and read the essay and check the passages. Once more, in the instance of the letter in the unconscious, Descartes' wager comes up. Cogito ergo sum. I think, therefore I am. In the cogito part, you see this transparent, supposedly transcendental subject. And then in the sum, therefore I am, you see an existential affirmation of that translucent subject. Here's Lacan's argument against and around this Cartesian bumper sticker. To address this phrase to someone, cogito ergo sum, and don't forget, it's a phrase, it's a saying. Descartes addressed that shit to his readership, is to constitute oneself as a grammatical subject in Lacanian terms. And if you want to know what grammatical subject means, this is from his essay, Subversion of the Subject, Dialectic of Desire. You can check out our podcast episodes where we spend a lot of time Teasing out the distinction between the enunciating subject and the grammatical subject. The grammatical subject, in brief, is how you appear in language when you talk about yourself. There's the you that's speaking, that's the enunciating subject. And then there's the you that is figured in spoken discourse. And you can see why this is important for analytic experience. The analyzant shows up and has a lot to say about themselves. Well, Lacan's point is that there are always two subjects at play in moments like this. There's the you of which you're speaking, which may often be the you that is not the you of which you're speaking. And this is the essay where he tries to tease this out. And then you have to also factor in how the analyst plays a part in all of this. So, you've got this elaborate intersubjective structure occurring in analytic experience. What Lacan wants to do with the grammatical subject is separate it from the embodied speaking being that is constantly producing it at the level of their discourse about themselves. And he wants to say that this cogito ergo sum stumbles in to a lot of the same ego speak that we see in analytic experience. Because what happens when you tell somebody, I think therefore I am, is that you constitute yourself in speech. You are now a being in language and as language. And in this sense, you are less a thinking subject, a cogitans, if you like your Latin, than an object of your own thought, a cogitatum. And by extension, somebody else's thought too. So note the shift here. When I tell you, I think therefore I am, I'm less a thinking subject in that moment than an object for both of us to consider. That's important here. I'm not a subject when I talk about myself. In fact, I'm quite more directly an object. What happens here, is that it limits my existence, my being there in my being to self-consciousness, to my ability to think and think about and talk about myself, namely to my status as an ego. That's the real dilemma here. I think therefore I am, it limits existence, the being there in my being and all this business to self-consciousness, to effectively ego, And as we know in psychoanalysis, um, that is ultimately a trap, even if it is an important uh, one to to step through on your way somewhere else. Here, the enunciating subject, the subject of the signifier, embodied subject on the side of being, is subordinate to and suppressed by the grammatical subject, the subject of the signified, which is this subject in the field of language, in the field of not being, but meaning. In many ways, this is the Lacanian subject. The split subject is a subject split between its status as an enunciating embodied speaker with impulses and the like, and a grammatical, figured in discourse entity, an object, um, that is also shot through with impulses, not least of which is the desire for your approval and recognition because if i didn't have that desire i wouldn't be addressing this speech to you in hopes that you would sign off on the fact and say oh you know what you are indeed a thinking being gee whiz thanks for that i get it now boy you really are that one Um, if i were certain that i was i wouldn't need your stamp of approval the challenge here becomes and this is lacan Whether I speak of myself in a way that conforms to what I am. This is the real challenge in Lacan's essay in 1957. There's a lot in there on language, but around the discussion of the unconscious, the agency of the letter in the unconscious, this is the key theme. When I speak about myself, does that speech conform to what I am? The challenge is to know whether I speak of myself in a way that conforms to what I am. This challenge though, is false. This attempt, this struggle to constantly speak what you are is a dead end, a red herring because it presumes a correspondence theory of the subject. Where there's what I say over here and what I am over here. And the goal is to equivocate, is to make them equi- equivalent, to equate them. And, and Lacan's like, that's that's not really what we're after here. But notice also that we are not just talking about Lacanian psychoanalysis here. Isn't this also the primary piston of today's identity politics? I show up and tell you my pronouns. And that assumes that I'm able to put into speech exactly what I am. That assumes that I can make my speaking correspond directly with my being. Maybe the correct way to respond to the demand that we announce our pronouns is just to say, I don't know, or to say I'm unable. But that's precisely what's happening here, this struggle to find a correspondence, an equivalence, mathematical and otherwise, to speech and being. This challenge is false. And so is all of the white-faced, mush-minded, techno-liberal hand-wringing that it produces, particularly among educated elites in the West. And it distracts us, I would offer, from another more properly Lacanian challenge. And here it is. When I talk about myself, am I the same as the self of whom I speak? Or to put it in the Cartesian side, when I think about myself, am I the same as the self of whom I think. In short, the answer is no, which begs the question, why not? Behind all the professed self-certainties of the ego, we know, is this fundamental field of uncertainty. This is well-developed in Lacan's 50s thought, particularly in the Function in the Field essay. You see a lot of terrific work in there, on developing and revealing behind the ego, the fundamental uncertainties that prop it up, that it continually resists, which is exactly why, of course, I am always addressing my self-certainties to you, to an audience, why self-certainty is always addressed to others, because I need your endorsement, your guarantee, your recognition. It's the sure sign that I am not certain when I start addressing my supposed certainties to you. This is all Lacan's ego theory in the 50s. Um, you can get this uh, all over the place, but the function in the field essay is really where it starts popping, I think. At stake in all of this is the basic veil, this either-or of alienation. On the one side there is being, and on the other side there is meaning. And it might be useful at this point to just pause and get out some diagrams and start drawing some of this stuff. The diagram is simple, but I think it's helpful to actually have it before you to see. So I'm going to start sharing my screen here. And as always, bring us up to this whiteboard here. All right, thumbs up if you can see what we have in front of us now. All right, thank you. So the obvious part that's gonna be happening here is famous diagrams in Lacan's thought here. These are two of them. And what we'll do is make it a little bigger so there's some more room over here. Um, On one side, you have being. Here is usually where you see the subject, and on the other you have meaning. Here is where you see the other, note I'm writing it as a barred other. We have yet to defend that claim beyond the structural logic of container and thing contained, but suffice it to say that's where it goes. On the left you see the field of the subject, on the right you see the field of the big other. Okay. On this left-hand side, what you see is an I that is unconscious, that is also related to the enunciating subject, which I write as E.S because I also want to flag as Lacan cleverly does the correspondence between enunciating subject and empty set. On the other side, you see a different I. The I that shows up in the field of the big other is the I that corresponds to the ego. Here's your grammatical subject. Here's your Cartesian subject. Here is also that delusional cogitans, that thinking being is out here in the field of meaning. And you've got these two choices, these two two options as to where you want to be. For us, in understanding what Lacan is doing here against Descartes in his 1957 essay on the instance, what we have are a couple of key phrases. And if you want to read along with this, They're on page 430 of Ikri. And we'll pause for a second so you can grab the book as I just did. We're talking about the standard English translation of Ikri. We're on page 430. And we're toward the bottom of page 430 in the second to the last full paragraph. That is, it wasn't going very far, is how it begins. And then Lacan gives us a phrase toward the bottom of 430. I am thinking where I am not. Therefore, I am where I'm not thinking. Now, he is clearly messing with the Cartesian, I think, therefore, I am. And he's saying, I am thinking where I'm not therefore i am where i'm not thinking this is his first turn of two out of the cartesian cogito ergo sum now what i want to do is i want to read this sentence again but i'm going to add the two different eyes so that you know what he's talking about a little more clearly here i am thinking as subject of the unconscious as unconscious where I, as an ego, am not. Therefore, I am, as an unconscious subject, where I, as an ego, am not thinking. So you see the slip here, right? Is you have to understand that when Lacan is using the the vertical pronoun I here, he's messing with two different senses. On the one hand, you've got the je, You've got the sub, which he often uses for the subject. And then you've got the moi, the, the, what he often uses for the ego. He's having both of them at play here. The ja and the ich, if you, if you want to have your German going here at the same time. So here it is again. I am thinking as unconscious where I as ego am not. Therefore, I am as unconscious where I as ego am not thinking. That's how you want to read what he's doing on 430. And remember, what we're up to here is trying to understand this key move he's making again and again and again in seminar 14. All right, now on 430, go down a few more lines to the second turn out of and against Descartes that Lacan comes up with here. The paragraph begins, what we must say is, and here Lacan tries to give it to us as directly as possible. I am not where I am the plaything of my thought. I think about what I am where I do not think I am thinking. Now this is fundamental here. And again, we can add the two different types of subjectivity enunciating and grammatical that he's playing with here. I'll add them and you can read along and and figure it with me as well. I, as unconscious, am not where I, as ego, am the plaything of my thought. I, again, as unconscious, think about what I am. And here he means as an unconscious subject, as an enunciating subject, and also as an ego, as a grammatical subject. I, as unconscious, think about what I am, as unconscious and ego, where I, as ego, do not think I am thinking. So part of the reason why these, why these phrases are difficult is that Lacan is toying with two understandings of the vertical pronoun, I. One refers to an enunciating subject, which occupies, thanks to the big other, the field of the unconscious, and the other as ego, which also, thanks to the efforts of the big other, becomes a grammatical subject. And that's how we read these key bumper stickers in the instance of the letter in the unconscious. 10 years before Lacan is working on this other stuff. The key point here, again, is you have to hold both meanings of I in mind as you read this account. And the same is true of Lacan's use of I in Seminar 14 on the logic of fantasy. I can mean ego, a la Freud's ich, but again, it can also mean subject, a la Lacan's je, which is which is distinct from his term for ego, moi, right? I, though, is how we get it. Now, I'm not saying that if you go back to the French, you're going to see all these distinctions. Oftentimes, that's not the case. Um, but conceptually, this is a way to understand what Lacan is doing here with these phrases. Which brings us to the big one in 14, the one that he keeps coming back to for reasons that I hope will become apparent. Either I do not think, or I am not. Once again, there's a reason why this is called the logic of fantasy. Either I do not think, or I am not. Were we to continue with our mapping here, what you would have here is, I am not. And I do not think. Either I do not think or I am not. Here's that either or again. All right. First and foremost, I do not think. Let's start with this one. The reason why we can say you're not thinking when you are operating as a grammatical subject in the field of the big other is because according to Lacan, all true thoughts are unconscious thoughts. Thinking is most profound when it is separated from consciousness. True thoughts are unconscious thoughts, not waking, self-aware Conscious thoughts. The ego, in other words, it thinks it's thinking, but its self consciousness is in fact false consciousness. That's important. And it's an easy way to understand what he's saying. I do not think in the field of the big other. The reason why we don't think in the field of the big other is because everything that passes for thought in that experience is false true thought is unconscious self-consciousness in the field of the ego as conditioned by that of the big other is in fact false consciousness that's why you're not thinking out here because what passes for thought is a bunch of bullshit it's called ideology which brings us to this i am not because the i as coherent, unified, transparent, translucent, transcendent self is revealed to be a mirage in and by the unconscious. The I that is not here is the I that thinks it's thinking in the field of the big other. The ego is revealed to be a mirage out here in the field of being. The Cartesian subject is a unified self is revealed as a mirage by the experience of the unconscious. So part of what's happening here is the I that is not is the ego that falls apart in the field of the unconscious. That's one way to understand this. Let's add a couple more. From the vantage point of meaning of the big other, of the symbolic, the grammatical subject, the ego, there's nothing out here and certainly no elements of oneself as an egocentric, self-conscious cogitans. That's one way to understand this I am not. I am not an ego here. That's what we have. The I am not says, I am not an ego in the field of being. But it's not the most profound way to understand what Lacan's doing here with I am not. One turn better. I am as a not out here in the field of being. So it's not just that the ego doesn't exist. It's that my sense of self, if you could have it as that, out here is that of a not. I equal something that is not. I'm a not. Non-being, existence as a not as we know, is a function of the no, is an effect of the signifier. And this is precisely the position of the unconscious, as well as its ontology. That's also, and more profoundly, what is at stake in the I am not. It's a way of being as nothing, as a not thing, which of course Marks the fact that we are subject to and an effect of this no thing that is the name of the Father. Happy to unpack all this, but if you've seen the previous lectures in this series, you know exactly what we're getting at here. So, on the one hand, you could read this as I am not an ego out here in the field of being, the way I am over here in the field of meaning. But the other way is I am a not out here. In other words, the field of being that we are dealing with here is in fact a field of non-being. And psychoanalysis is profound because it is the greatest tradition for thinking this non-being. That's the important part here. The reason why I've got it barred or marked out is to indicate this. And the reason why I always say that psychoanalysis is a science but it deals not with objectivity, but instead objectality, not things, but openings, not quids, but causes, is because the field of non-being is a field of openings, not entities, not objects to be studied, but openings to be traced. And psychoanalysis does a very good job in the Lacanian tradition of tracing those openings, the opening that is the unconscious, which is, oddly enough, the primary object that Freud discovered. Freud's great discovery was an object for psychoanalytic theory and technique that was, in fact, not an object at all, but an opening. This is how Lacan reads it and how I encourage you to as well. So here's the deal. What the fuck does all this have to do with fantasy? Why are we in the nosebleed heights of Cartesian thought and this logical game Lacan is playing around the ego and the unconscious in a seminar that's supposed to be about fantasy? Well, check it out. He realizes at some level That his audience is wondering about this which is in part why on page 91 to 92 of this seminar of the unofficial unpublished though readily available English translation of this seminar you get him trying to spell it out he's absolutely trying to spell out what he's doing here and how this helps with the logic of fantasy. First paragraph is about the logic of fantasy. And then he wants to show how alienation is important because that's the foundation for this logic of fantasy. But in order to understand alienation, he goes on to say, you also have to understand the unconscious because that's the truth of alienation. This is kind of where we are right now. Now, what you also have to do if you want to understand the unconscious is understand what Lacan is doing with Obje A, because that is what supports the truth of the unconscious, that is the truth of alienation, that is the foundation for the logic of fantasy. Page 91, he's, he's trying to explain all this, but here's the deal. If you want to understand Obje A, you have to understand castration. That's why he shifts to castration, right here in the middle of page 91 and not just the castration of the subject, but the castration of the big other. And that's the big wager here. Toward the bottom of 91, he starts turning away from the castration of the split subject and towards that of the big other, here figured as the mother. And then from there, It's on to sexuality and right back to the topic of fantasy. 91 to 92 is fabulous for this stuff. And I would suggest we could make some good progress by just reading those couple pages. So with that, I wanna pause, take a break, 10 minutes, take a look at pages 91 to 92. You get 90 pages into this seminar before Lacan tries to show up and tell you what the fuck he's talking about. It's not the best account of what's occurring, but I would submit that it proceeds just as I was telling you, from fantasy all the way through to sexuality. Those two pages, they're not fire, but they're a pretty good indication of how he is seeing all of these concepts lining up. So let's take 10, come back at 1116 and we'll pick up where we left off and shift to, I think the more profound stuff that's occurring in the first third of um, of this seminar which, which is around repetition um, from repression to repetition to retroaction. The triple R's that take place in the first third of this seminar are really important to understanding what Lacan is up to with the one. Which I would still submit as the center, the centerpiece, conceptually speaking, of what he's doing. But start with 91, 92, see if you can get your bearings. Come back at in 10 minutes and we'll pick up there, in addition to having some questions. Thanks. All right, welcome back. We have asked the basic question here. What the hell does all this have to do with fantasy? And in the break, in the conversation that erupted between the illustrious group that is here, tiny and forceful, um, what we came up with was some pages where Lacan is trying to explain to everybody what the hell he's up to. If you've got this unofficial English translation linked up to via our Substack, the page in question would be 91 and it would go really until 92. But if you've got a different translation or you're reading from the French, we're talking about the lecture Lacan gives in seminar 14 on January 25th, 1967. It's a really terrific summary of what he's up to here. And we've been talking about it, but I wanna make sure that it's also here in the recording so that you, dear viewer, dear listener, can can track this page down and read it for yourself. In brief, what you'll see when you read these opening remarks from January 25th, 1967, is Lacan basically saying, hey, y'all, you've attended nine lectures so far in this new 1966-1967 series on the logic of fantasy. But damn, you heard a lot of logic, but you're probably wondering where's the fantasy in all this? And so he starts here in this lecture from the 25th of January, 1967, this ninth lecture in the seminar on the logic of fantasy by saying, look, we are still on the trail of the logic of fantasy. We've been talking about alienation because it's the foundation of the logic of fantasy. And now we've shifted to talking about the unconscious because it gives the truth of alienation. But in order to understand the unconscious as the truth of alienation, that is the foundation for the logic of fantasy, he says, you also got to know a little something about obje this little O object we see in this English translation. <clears throat> How this obje supports the truth of the unconscious, which supports the truth of alienation, which undergirds the logic of fantasy. So what Lacan is trying to do here is take you through the foundation, the layers that he's been trying to work us on. But here's the deal. As you maybe have seen in our lectures on seminar 10 and seminar 11, in order to understand objaya, you have to understand castration, the minus phi that is the incision that produces the opening designated by the algebraic symbol A, little a, italicized a, objaya. which is why in the very next paragraph, on page 91 here, Lacan shifts from this object, cause of desire, little a, back to castration, marked, of course, by the minus phi. And then he wants to talk about two types of castration. There's the castration that we usually discuss around the Lacanian subject, the split subject. Here, though, the great breakthrough is Lacan is saying that The big other is also subject to the same defiles of the signifier and is thus just as castrated as the subject. And he wants to go even further than that. He wants to say, and here we're just working on this lecture, he wants to say that if you push hard enough on castration, what you realize is that in the imaginary pre-Oedipal triangle, between the child, the maternal figure, and the imaginary object known as the phallus, there's the horrific encounter of a big other that he says, a big other that is inaugural to the lived experience of the life of the child, namely the maternal figure, that is itself barred. The first big other in the child's life is whatever individual is figured as the maternal function. And what Lacan says is the first barred big other that the child encounters horrifically, mind you, is this individual. And isn't that precisely what the pre-edipal imaginary triangle that we've worked on before illustrates in order to secure the mother's desire for the child, the child imagines the mother's desire for other things. In other words, to satisfy the child's desire for the mother, coming at this from a different angle, the child imagines, fantasizes even, about the desire of the mother for other stuff. Desire for becomes desire of. And this other stuff here represented by the phallus or the imaginary object is a proto symbol because it symbolizes the child's imagination of what mommy wants other than me that she currently doesn't have. If this is correct, it means that mommy is desirous. It means that mommy is not just the big other with all the answers and all the food and all the power in my life. It means that mommy is a big other that is in fact barred, split, lacking, and thus desirous. She doesn't have everything she wants. And this is horrific for the child, which is partly why the paternal function is so damn important here. As we have seen in previous series, I'm not gonna rehearse the whole thing. We just don't have time to do it today. The paternal function is to cut in <clears throat> in a way that negates this imaginary object, hence minus phi. Minus fee as the symbol of castration here. And effectively says to the child, mommy doesn't have, and you cannot be this imaginary object. She doesn't have the phallus and you can't be it for her. And what a relief. Mommy's desire is now subordinate to, substituted for, the no, the prohibition, the non of the father. That's what's up with the first stage of the name of the father. It's the no of the father. And what that no, that prohibition cuts into say is, mommy doesn't have the phallus and you can't be it for her. And this is a good thing for the child because it gives them some breathing room. It's the pin according to Lacan, the rolling pin that is wedged into the back of the jaws of this desirous big other, to keep them from closing on to the child. The paternal function is to keep the jaws of mommy's desire from snapping on that little child. And also to stave off anxiety, because as life goes on, this will become a source of anxiety. If the desire of the big other is constantly overwhelming and surrounding the subject in a way that the subject experiences as overwhelming. This is what we worked out in seminar 10 series. You can check it out there. I'm not gonna mess with it here. What we have here importantly though is Lacan tracing what he's doing with the logic of fantasy all the way back to this figure of maternal desire at the very inaugural lived experience of the life of the child. He's trying to offer some evidence of the barred other that he thinks is at root a support for the logic of fantasy. And he goes further than that. Here again, I'm just summarizing the discussion that we've had um, in this lengthy break um, for those of you who who, who weren't here. Um, He goes further and to say that what this means is that the big other, Doesn't exist. He's clear about this. Page 92 the other does not exist. And what he means by that is that the big other, as we conceive it, as represented in the lower right hand quadrant of the graph of desire, as a capital A with a circle around it, this treasure trove of signifiers that has all the answers and all the words, the dictionary, the absolute book, all the things we talked about last time, doesn't exist. The other is always already barred from mommies to Queens of England. In other words, he says, there is no other, which in turn puts him right back in the field of fantasy because the fundamental fantasy is that in fact, there is a non-barred, non-split, extra symbolic, big other. The fundamental fantasy is that the big other is not barred, not lacking like me, but instead complete, whole, and full. And what Lacan's trying to do is burst that bubble right out of the gates to say, wrong, motherfucker what you presume to be whole, full, omniscient, omnipotent, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, no surprise, God is popping here as well, is in fact just as leaky as you are. And then the question is, what do you do with that horror? According to Lacan on page 92, this is the correct footing that we have to sustain long enough in order to begin He's just at the start here in order to begin to talk about the logic of fantasy. Thanks for listening to Lectures on the Con. Stay tuned for more episodes soon. A big shout out to the artist Jerry Paper for our podcast theme music.